welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. William Bill Bratton grew up in Dorchester, a large and tough neighborhood in Boston. He knew the Boston streets and became a police officer in 1970. Bratton is best known for his work as police commissioner in Boston, New York City, and LA. And by dramatically dropping crime rates in those cities, he's also known for the broken windows policing theory. This is fixing the small things before they become bigger issues. Bratton's resume is almost too long to recap. Suffice to say, he's known as America's top cop. Commissioner Bill Bratton has authored and co-authored a number of books about policing and bridging the gap between the police and the community. Bratton's latest book, The Profession, is an honest and gripping read on the career, struggles, and triumphs of the man they call America's top cop. We welcome Commissioner Bratton to the podcast, and it's an absolute honor to have you. Great to be here with you and your guests. Thank you so much. So before we begin, we want to give a shout out to Charina, our mutual friend, who okay. is a great guest of the show. I know her well. <laughs> yes, she loves you, and uh, we're honored that she recommended you for the show. And she has suggested a few other guests as well. So she's a great guest. She's a great friend of the show. I've been honored to meet you in the past through my brother-in-law, Stephen McDonald, who mm -hmm. passed away a few years ago, was a member of the NYPD. I want to thank you for how good you've been to our family through the years. It was a privilege to know him and through him to get to know the family, that's for sure. For, I first met Stephen back in 1990 when I came to New York as chief of transit police. And he was, at that time, really just beginning the struggles that he dealt with so, so honorably over the uh, next three decades. Yeah, I asked my husband, and that's what he said. He said, you were really there from the beginning, just a few years after his injury. So you've meant a lot to the family. Thank you very much. I'm just going to start off on a personal note. <laughs> I'm, I'm going off script already. Yeah, we're, uh, we're so, a little fangirl here. <laughs> so you are from Dorchester. and that's right. uh, Yes, and I, I live there now, actually. Okay, so uh, I'm not originally from Dorchester. I grew up at Meeting House Hill uh, Math School. Okay. First, first Church, St. Peter's Parish. So you have to know your parishes and, if you're going to if you're going to be in, in Dorchester. Dorchester. You identify by parish. Absolutely. <laughs> Most people outside of Boston don't know that. I'm not originally a Dorchester person. I know you could never tell from my accent. That, but, that's uh, easy to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we Canterburyans. We don't have the accent. <laughs> that's right. But you did seem to know from a young age that you were meant to become a police officer. Can you tell our listeners a bit how you came to realize that? I don't know that I realized or thought I was meant to be a police officer. I certainly thought a lot about it, and that was a career goal, as particularly as I got older. 
I know all through elementary school, I couldn't wait till I got in sixth grade so I could join the safety patrol and get my white strap and my badge and help the other kids cross at the school crossing. So <laughs> I, I aspired to policing from an early age. And uh, fortunately, uh, it all came true. What's, what's the, my wife's book entitled Fairy Tales Can't Come True. Well, in some respects, uh, dreams can come true also. So my dreams of being a police officer, being New York City Commissioner, as far-fetched as that was, I let on LAPD. And they came true. Absolutely. And we were the beneficiaries of that as well. And you started your career as a beat cop in Boston. Tell us a little bit. This was, what time period are we talking about? Are we talking late 70s? We're talking, uh, I had just come back from three years in the military, Vietnam, 67 or 70, military policeman, sentry dog handler, and took the civil service exam as soon as I got back to Boston and was very fortunate to get hired very quickly. In 1970, one day after my 23rd birthday, literally every police chief or police commissioner in America, you start at the bottom and work your way up. And at the bottom is you start as a beat cop. And my beat was Mattapan, an all-black neighborhood that two years before had been an all-white Jewish neighborhood. But through redlining and uh, real estate skullduggery, that they, they pushed the Jewish population out and moved in the black population. And unfortunately, uh, with the black population, that it was also a growth in crime where the uh, blacks were the principal victims of crime, but also were the principal perpetrators of it in that neighborhood. So I began my career 23 years old with a six-shot revolver, set of handcuffs, a call box key. Communication back then before smartphones and cell phones and beepers was a call box. Every several blocks, there was one on the corner. Had a little red light on the top. If they wanted to send you on assignment, they put the red light on. You go to the call box, open it with your key, and wow. lean in and get your messages. After about a year, graduated into police cars, uh, actually sector cars. And that was part of the trending in the early 70s that beat cops, which were pretty much pervasive throughout America in large cities, moved very quickly into cars. And that was in response to the growth of the 911 system that came into being in the early 70s quickly created a much larger demand for service of police services. And to respond to it, they had to increase our mobility. So we all went into cars. And in those cars, we got two-way radios, and we were very busy. It was a time in Boston of uh, great turmoil. It was a time in our country of great turmoil. Coming out of the 60s, uh, you had the civil rights movement, the death assassination of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. You had the anti-war movements that was in full swing at that time. You had the loosening up, if you will, of our societal wars and values that the hippie generation, uh, generation of free love, et cetera. I miss that generation, unfortunately. <laughs> that they, they were taking hold at that time. It was a time of great turmoil in our country. And one of the turmoils was a growing crime problem, particularly in the inner cities. And that's what I came into in American policing at that time, that turbulence, if you will. Fifty years later, <laughs> we have much the same. We have racial tension. We have uh -huh. political dichotomy. We have a tremendous medical virus we're dealing with. And we have a very unsettled world. In many respects, Jogi uh, Berra's famous statement, deja vu all over again. So I feel like 50 years, I've come full circle, kind of back where I started. That's interesting. And I've heard you mention that, that you feel like we're kind of repeating the cycle of the 70s again with the crime rates and a lot of the things that are going on. Let me give you a brief description of that in terms of why I think in some respects we're back where we started. There were three trends. George Kelling and James Wilson, who wrote the Broken Windows article that really is part of the, my philosophy of policing, Broken Windows. 
George Kelling was a great describer, if you will, of the situations of policing during the various decades. And in the 70s, he described that as the professional era where policing was beginning to form up more as a profession. Prior to the 70s, it really was not, didn't have a lot of elements of a profession. But there were three trends that were going on at that time that impacted significantly on the profession. One was deinstitutionalization. We were letting many people with mental illness out of our mental institutions, which were like prisons, and well-intended effort to send them home, self-treatment, neighborhood treatment centers. None of that happened. What ended up happening, we created the homeless population, a population that was very disturbed and created a lot of disturbances on the streets of America in the 1970s. We had decriminalization, decriminalization in the sense that many of the laws that police had been asked to enforce were taken away. Why? Because we were abusing them. We uh, had the Miranda rulings. We had the Escobedo rulings. We had the idea that many of the things that you would use to control the streets, loitering, public drunkenness, those laws were decriminalized. Drunkenness was determined to be an illness, not a crime. So you had a growing homeless mental illness population. You had a lot of the disruptive behavior caused by drunkenness and other disorderly behavior on the streets. And thirdly, you had depolicing. Many cities, including my home city of Boston, were shrinking the size of their police forces. Budget problems, etc. Some of it was to take money away from the police and allocate it to the other growing issues. Doesn't that sound familiar? Defund the police. So here we are 50 years later. Sure. Uh, back in the 70s, we were effectively defunding the police by reducing the size of the police force to deal with a growing problem of disorder on our streets and a growing crime problem. And so the three Ds, deinstitutionalization, decriminalization, depolicing. Boston Police went from 2,800 officers to 1980. By that time, I had come up through the ranks. I was superintendent of police in Boston, the highest ranking uniform officer. I had to lay off every officer hired since 1970, Boston Police Department, wow. including all my classmates. And we were down to 1,544 officers for a while. Fast forward to 2021, we have decriminalization in that we're going through this whole criminal justice reform movement, bail reform movement. We have deinstitutionalization once again, which is we're letting a lot of people in prison, out of prison. A lot of uh, prison population, we have been letting out well-intended efforts to see if we can help them go straight. And that was accelerated by the coronavirus where they didn't want to keep them in such close quarters. And we also have the defund the police movement, depolicing, where a lot of police departments are shrinking in size, a lot of officers leaving because of the conditions they're having to deal with. And that so over 50 years, some respects back where we started. And what else is happening? We're in the midst of the opioid drug crises. And in the 70s, we're starting to see the growth of the cocaine, heroin problem, hallucinogens. We are also in the midst of a tremendous increase in crime that began in the 70s and then really accelerated through the early 1990s. So we're seeing kind of this mirror image, if you will, of what the 70s were now in 2021. The difference this time is that we, in some respects, are no better prepared to deal with it now than we were back then. We have a lot of less trust on the part of the community and police, particularly minority communities. We have a lot more technology to work with. It's all the thieves. Just think of crime and disorder were the two things we had to deal with in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In 9-11, we had to now deal with terrorism. And terrorism morphed from Al-Qaeda into ISIS. And now we have the domestic terrorism threat that we're very concerned with. We have all types of cybercrime issues evolving from the embrace of the internet, smartphones, Kindles, Facebook. We have such a tremendous growth in human trafficking, pedophilia, 
all of that accelerated and aided by what we think of as a benefit, this wonderful world of technology we live in. American policing being asked to do an awful lot with less at this particular point in time. And I think that is impacting on the growing crime problem, the continuing racial tension, and the growth of significant growth of technology, crime, hacking, ransomware. Seems every day we have a new term for a new crime. So it's been an interesting 50 years. I write about all of this in my book, The, uh, yes. the Art of Policing, if you No, we read it. <laughs> we both read it. And, and hopefully you liked it. Yeah, loved we it. liked it. I absolutely loved it. loved it. I listened to it and I love your, I love I'm actually, listening, love to Boston it. I'm actually listening to it myself. Oh, you are. I like to listen to myself talk, so I'm actually listening to it. <laughs> oh, myself. don't we all? I love that you read it. I actually really enjoyed that you oh, read I sat, it. I sat in a booth the size of a phone booth for six days with my knee pressed against the wall. <laughs> basically with a voice like this trying to record it. It was, uh, it was six long days. I just wanted to back up a little bit. You went from Boston and you went to New York and New York was having a horrible problem with crime. You first were in the NYPD, transit PD, basically. I get what you're saying about that. The 70s are very much like the times we are now. What I enjoyed reading in your book was how you address these problems and really practical solutions to fix them. So let me take, let me take your audience on a quick 20 year trip through the 70s and 80s very, very quickly. Please. 70s, we began to plant the seeds, if you will, of disorder and crime on the streets. In the 80s, it accelerated fewer police, more disorder. Police were overwhelmed by the 911 calls for service. And we're focusing most of our attention on serious crime and not doing a very good job of dealing with that because that was accelerated by the crack cocaine epidemic that really destroyed so many of our inner cities and decimated the uh, black population in particular. So by 1990, 20 years into my career, worst crime year in the history of America, that New York City case in point. New York City had 2,243 murders, 5,000 people shot in the streets, over half a million serious crimes in a city of seven and a half million people. During the 80s, I had continued to grow in the police profession. I left the Boston Police in 1983, take over the Transit Police in Boston, the MTA, as you would know it, and that uh, did that for three years. And for four years, I ran a state police organization, the Metropolitan Police in Boston. Both of those appointments through Governor Mike Dukakis when he was governor of Massachusetts. The Metropolitan Police were going to be merged into the Massachusetts State Police in 1990. So in response to a uh, request from George Kelling, my good friend, and Bob Wasserman, one of my lifelong mentors, who were working as consultants in the New York City transit system, the subway, where they were having widespread crime and disorder problems, offered the opportunity to come to New York to take over that department. For me, this was kind of a fulfillment of a lifelong dream, the idea of New York City. And the carrot that was held out was, boy, if you can succeed in the subway police, get some notoriety in New York City, who knows? Uh, it's like an off-Broadway production. Maybe you could get on a Broadway and get onto the 14th floor police headquarters. Can I just stop you for one second? Tell us what was going on in the New York transit system at that time. Well, I just described the crime problem in the streets above. Below ground, they had 22 murders that year, averaging about 50 crimes a day. But the three and a half million subwriters, when asked, most of them would indicate that the subways had more crime in the streets. And why? Because of the compressed circumstances. Reading the tabloids would always celebrate the crime. Because back in those days, where everybody read tabloids on the trains, they naturally the newspapers pitched to that audience. So the perception of crime was much worse than the reality. 
but it was also compounded by the reality of what they were seeing in every station, every subway car. For a while in the 70s, every subway car was totally covered with graffiti, every subway station. When I arrived in 1990, there was an estimated 5,000 homeless people moving around in the subway system, including several hundred who lived in the tunnels. And that was some of the 120 some odd people who died every year getting run over by trains in their drunken or narcotics uh, stupor. Fare evasion, 250,000 events a day with people entering without paying a fare. Vandals destroying the turnstiles, holding up the token booths. It was very chaotic and crime and disorder and the perception far exceeded the reality, which was barely known. So I had, going back to my Boston days, was well aware of the importance of focusing not only on crime, but on disorder at the same time. And this was a reflection of what was written about in the Broken Windows article by Kelly and Wilson in the Atlantic Monthly. The idea, concept of broken windows is that if you don't take care of little things like an abandoned factory, the first broken window, come back in a couple of weeks and all the windows are broken. And it was based on an experiment which a car had been left in a neighborhood, a tough neighborhood. It was fine. And they purposely broke one window on the car. Within a week, the car was stripped. It, it gave the image that it was not cared for, so it basically uh, deteriorated very quickly. Same thing in a neighborhood. If you don't take care of those quality of life issues, the prostitute, the gang in the corner, the drug dealer, the graffiti, that giving the sense that nobody's in control, there is no safety here, that gives the criminals a fertile environment to grow. There's weeding of a garden. If you don't take care of the weeds, the weeds can kill the strongest oak tree eventually. I oftentimes compare it with medical comparisons that the idea of oftentimes that you're not feeling well, you go to a doctor, that's a, that's a broken window. And he examines you and determines, well, that, that little thing on your skin is basically, that basal cell is really a melanoma and it's a cancer. And if we don't take care of it, it's going to kill you. And so it's what broken windows is what really disturbs people in the neighborhood because they can see the neighborhood deteriorating and they feel that government doesn't care about it. So I married the concept of doing crime control more effectively, but also at the same time doing something about all those quality of life crimes in the subway. And the crime control initiative we practiced, myself and a young transit lieutenant called Jack Maple. I brought Jack Maple several years later with me when I became police commissioner under Rudy Giuliani in 1994. And working with several others, Luana Bowen and others, to deal with the still very bad crime problem in New York City, we came up with a system called CompStat, right. Computer Statistics. And it was the idea, it had four elements, and once again, this matches up with a doctor examining you for a minor illness that might be serious. Timely, accurate intelligence, gather up your crime stats every day, all your different crime stats, map them. Rapid response to those growing patterns and trends with those dots on the map, and you'll just eventually see three, four, five, if you're not doing anything about them. So you rapidly respond to the growing patterns and trends. Use effective tactics, effective medicines. Doctor gives you 10 milligrams of that, five milligrams of this. And you constantly check to see how's it going. Are the crime dots disappearing? Is the cancer disappearing? And that was CompStat, it's that simple. And it was a crime control strategy initiative, but it was also an accountability initiative. And this is the key element of it. It gave me as a commissioner of a 50,000 person police department the opportunity to get down into the engine room of this HMS uh, NYPD and to see all the crew, those precinct captains, those borough commanders, and who was good, who wasn't. And I was able to move them around. Jim Collins has a great management book, Good to Great. He talks about the bus. Get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and get them in the right seats. That's what CompStat does. 
But what Comstat also does is Collins talks about the flywheel. Flywheel is uh, it takes a lot of energy to get it going, but if you get it going, it eventually develops its own momentum. But you want the right people on that the bus dealing with crime to get enough momentum going that they eventually keep the momentum going to keep crime going down. And what happened? Well, starting in the 1990s until 2019, crime went down every year in New York. In some years, it accelerated dramatically. Kind of a summation of it. In terms of dramatic, murders were down by 50%. That's what it- Well, actually in the 90s, that we had some of the most significant crime declines in history, 94, 95, when I was there. Continued under my successes, say for Carrick, Ray Kelly in particular. And then when I came back in 2014, for the second time as police commissioner under this time, Ed Lazio, crime was down dramatically. But by the time I left in 2016, it was down, I think, murders by almost 90% from the early 90s and overall crime by 80%. And that's where it was in 2016, 17, 18, under my successors, Jimmy O'Neill, and then Dermot Shea, who was the current commissioner. Unfortunately, in 2019, the legislature in Albany which they're prone to do, screw things up. Under the guise of criminal justice and bail reform, they passed a series of laws that are still having extraordinary negative impact on New York City and the rest of the state for that matter. So we're, once again, in the midst of a significant growing crime problem. And to give you a sense of the acceleration of letting people out of jail, understandably, you'd have fewer people in jail because there was so much less crime. So the Rikers population was down from 22,000 in the mid-1990s. So uh, when I think I left in 2016, they were down to about nine or 10,000. Mm-hmm. Understandable, fewer people committing crime, fewer people going to jail. Population now, I think, is down about 5,000. And that's been accelerated because of the bail reform, as well as letting people out for the COVID virus issues. In any event, we want to bridge too far, too fast. We let too many people out too fast. And they eventually began to populate the city streets along with the emotionally disturbed, along with the prostitutes that are now now being legalized. The streets in New York right now are somewhat problematic, and in certain neighborhoods, downright dangerous, and in many other neighborhoods, feel dangerous. So the challenge for the next mayor, who's likely to be Eric Adams, the next police commissioner, will be who knows. They're going to have very significant challenges ahead of them. Well, and a lot of that, the behavior has been decriminalized, hasn't it? Like jumping turnstiles in the subway. It's the district attorneys that compounded the problem in that, in a well-intended effort on their part, to try to help with criminal justice reform, see if we could, rather than sending people to jail for minor offenses or even for serious offenses, see if we do alternative types of training programs, et cetera. Well-intended, but many of them unfortunately don't work. And the coronavirus issue literally collapsed the criminal justice system in New York and around the country, for that matter. No trials. So New York right now has over 5,000 people who were arrested for carrying guns or gun-related crime who were arraigned before a judge, but the judge basically, under bail reform, had to let many of them go. And under concerns about coronavirus, want to keep a lot of people out of jail. So where are they? (laughs) Roaming the streets and the subways, awaiting trial. And uh, said repeatedly, I'll be willing to bet that many of them will never go to trial because their lawyers will demand speedy trial and DAs and the courts can't handle speedy trials. So they're going to have to dismiss. So we're going to have a population that's been emboldened by the fact, well, nothing happened to me the last time I carried a gun. Why should I worry about carrying it the next time? It's the same in Massachusetts. There's a huge backlog of cases. And I think they just take the most extreme cases 
first, obviously, or it, well, there's just a big it, backlog. Interesting yeah. you bring up Massachusetts because compounding the problem, George Soros, a billionaire living here in New York, has been funding for years an organization called the Open Society. A lot of it, its initial stage was to deal with drug addicted people, try to find better treatment, try to have the criminal justice system treat them as an illness rather than a crime. Well intended, but over time it has expanded into now funding district attorney races around the country. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, in Portland, in Boston, in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in Chicago, in New York, many of the district attorneys are now these leftist, if you will, progressive district attorneys who don't want to put anybody in jail. And in many respects, spend more of their time defending the defendants than defending the victims and the innocent. And so what you're describing, Massachusetts, is what we're dealing with here, where district attorneys would like to keep people out of jail, but I'm sorry that there's still a lot of very violent people that need to be in jail, need to be separated from the rest of us. And we're in 2021, we're in the midst of this yin and yang, the desire to reform, while at the same time, before the reforms began, we were actually doing pretty well. Jail populations were down, crime was down, police were reforming. As the George Floyd incident showed, though, we still had a lot more reform to do. But compared to where we were in 1970, where we were in 1980, 1990, 20, 2010, we were doing pretty well on that arc of policing I described. And the criminal justice reform initiative, in many respects, my opinion, snapped it right back, <laughs> brought us back to the 70s again. In the opening uh, page of the book, you may recall, was a quote from John Timoney. And the quote was, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Those who know policing know we don't know our history. Well, I would say the same thing for the criminal justice system, that a lot of our district attorneys, a lot of our new legislators, they're 30, 35, 40 years old. They went around 50 years ago to see how bad it was and how much we've improved. And in some respects, they're trying to reinvent the wheel. Well, the wheel's already been invented, might need some strengthening, some new spokes here and there. But effectively, the criminal justice system was always reforming. And in 2018, 2019, was doing pretty well. Still needed a lot, a lot needed to be done, but they tried to do too much too fast. One man's opinion. I um, appreciated in the book that you did so much of the history of the police. And you talk about how difficult and now being really one of the most difficult times to be a police officer. And I'm in a family of police officers. And I, you I cer- really- you certainly are. That uh, <laughs> Con, I understand, was just promoted to lieutenant. Yes, last uh, week. He was. Working at police commissioner's deal for your audience, Stephen McDonald's son. Yes, my nephew sense. was made lieutenant last week. But families like mine, I wonder if new generations are going to go on the job because it's so difficult now. The good know? news is uh, they will. You're going to see a period of time when there's less interest in policing. It's reflective somewhat of our new generation. We're into a Generation X now, I think. We, we blew through the millennials fairly quickly. Neither of those generations was particularly interested in public service. And they're generations that they don't look at their career so much as they look at a job for a couple of years and move on and do something else. That Policing is something that requires a 20 or 30-year commitment. And a lot of the younger generation doesn't think of it in that term. They don't think of the retirement benefits at the end of the time. And also the constant drumbeat of attacks on police at the moment are very disheartening to those who are in the profession and a strong disincentivization to those who might be thinking of coming into it. But I think that policing still is a phenomenal calling. And when I came into the business in 1970, again, it was a very similar time to now. Police were very much under attack for their brutality, for their corruption, for their racism. 
many young people like myself came out of this department because we felt we were different, that we could make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that in my 50 years, I did help to make a difference in the profession. At least that's my own self-opinion as expressed in the book that hopefully most people would agree, but there are certainly some that don't. And in the book, you do bring up, let's say, the example of LAPD. You went into a situation where there was a lot of hostility between the LAPD and the community. That's a situation, and I appreciate your honesty about it. There wasn't any, you didn't sugarcoat the fact that the LAPD were pretty racist and aggressive. Yeah, and, they, they were corrupt, you know, racist, and brutal. Right. Uh, in, in for a period of time in the 70s and 80s, they were reflective of American policing, but they never grew out of it until the 90s when it all fell apart and exploded. Right. But even when I got out there in 2002, it was still there. The generation that had been around in the 80s and 90s, there was still 50% of the department. And one of the things I do as a police leader, I think of myself as a transformative leader. I like going into organizations that are broke, that are broken and need to be fixed. And that was the case in Boston as they come up through the ranks. And when I went back there in 1992 again, certainly the case in the transit police, NYPD in 94, less so in 2014, the NYPD, but LAPD in 2002 was a broke department. Over a thousand officers had left in the previous year. They hated the police chief they had. The federal government had just come in and implemented the largest federal consent decree in the history of the country with a federal monitor. I was part of the original monitoring team, so I got to get inside and poke around inside the LAPD from the outside, and that's what inspired me to really want to go for the chief shot. It took a long time. I, I originally figured I'd be there for five years, but it took a couple of years longer than that, seven years, to transform the culture, and I think it's widely respected and understood that we did change that culture from one that was incredibly hostile to minority communities, particularly Blacks, but then the growing Latino population. To the extent that now it's uh, like many large American city departments, it's a minority majority department, particularly growing with Latinos and women. Minority population of uh, Los Angeles, Blacks dropped from 20%, I think they're down about 9 or 10% now. Many of them left to go to other communities outside of Los Angeles. But particularly proud of what I think was an accomplishment of a cultural turnaround in that department. Can you explain to our listeners how you did that, the kind of bulleted version of how you achieved that? It's uh, one, you need to be a leader. You need to be a leader that has a vision. You need to be a leader who has a vision, who knows how to get others to start to share that vision, who want to get on the bus, who want to get on those seats. In my second book, Collaborator Parish, I describe that you need to find common ground where people with different opinions, different ideas can come on to common ground. Why do we call it the commons in Boston? The common. It was a place where everybody could come and gather and exchange ideas. You have Marble Arch in uh, London where people come and speak their mind, a lot of different opinions. But you come to listen, you come to share. And what I try to do is be inclusive, not exclusive. The policing for most of its history has meant exclusive, letting very few people into the tent. I open up the tent side so you can see it from all around and come in. A lot of time in church basements, a lot of time in community meetings, a lot of time with the cops, riding them out with them at roll calls, sharing the vision, trying to get them inspired, trying to get more people to come into the tent. And I have a process I've developed over the years that really about how to go into it and transform an organization. And I call it a combination of re-engineering the department as well as cultural diagnostic of the department. The cultural diagnostic is to change something, you need to understand what it is you're trying to change. What are you trying to change it from to? I have a good idea of what I want to change it to, 
I want to be have it to be honest. I want to have integrity, commitment, and the issues of race certainly to not be racist. To get people there, you need to first find out where they are. And so the processes I use, officer surveys, citizen surveys, re-engineering is the idea of all these teams working on the identified issues that need to be changed. So it's inclusiveness, it's goal setting, it's stretch goal setting, and it's setting goals that can be achieved so that people get the satisfaction of, God, we did this, we did this together. And most importantly, there's an expression that I use frequently that was first shared with me by a woman in the book, Sweet Alice Harris. Community organizer, an African-American woman originally from the Deep South, became a very, very good friend of my wife and I. Spent a lot of time with her down in South LA, down at Watch. And when we were leaving after seven years, that emotional saying goodbye and kind of hugging each other. And she steps back and looks me in the eye and says, you know why we liked you so much, she Pratt? And I said, no, sweet Alice, why is that? And I'm repeating from the book. And she said, because you see us. You really see us. Yeah. And that's what I try to do as a chief of police, to see people. I love uh, that in the I book. I learned that yeah. years ago in my art classes in college. That I look at Renaissance painting and I roll my eyes. But what Dr. Avenides, the teacher, taught me was, understand what was going on at the time of the Renaissance and why paintings like this were so important, the idea that people were allowed to express themselves. So when you think about race issues, when you think about issues involving gays, when you think about immigrant issues, isn't it really about the idea of seeing people and not stereotyping them? And that's what I try to do with my cops, to just not see that kid with the baggy ass jeans and the baseball hat on backwards and immediately assume he's a gangbanger. Right. That a lot of those kids dress that way because it's a way of self-protection. <laughs> they, they basically kind of assimilate into the culture, into the look, because it's their way of being able to gravitate through that neighborhood. In certain neighborhoods, you don't wear blue. In certain neighborhoods, you don't wear red. It doesn't get you killed. And mm -hmm. so the cops need to understand those cultural issues, if you will. We are coming up close to closing time, so let yes, me uh, yes. ask you to hit me up with your last question. Oh, oh God, we have like God. some, I know it's I so know. hard. Going forward, I guess, what can we do now? And we're in such a divide in this country. Defund the police. <laughs> and I mean, we seem to be on such a The pendulum just doesn't seem to, to be a, in the it's middle. A, it's a great closing question in that, what do we do now? Because we are quite clearly in a mess. Yes. And one's going to take leadership. At the national level, it's effectively what President Biden's trying to do with this whole issue of bipartisanship. This idea of getting that bill through as we're talking today, passed this trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And they're celebrating the idea that it was bipartisan. Some Republicans signed on, whoop de doo. But <laughs> what he's all about is trying to find common ground. He's trying to get them to each see each other and see what America needs and to once again, try to come together for it. So at least at the national level for the time being, God help us in a couple of years with the presidential election again, we have a leader who is about trying to get people together rather than playing to their angers and their frustrations. For policing, it is a matter of police leaders and their politician bosses, mayors, governors, trying to see their constituents. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of dichotomy there where a lot of Republican governors on the response to the coronavirus, don't see the needs that a lot of their constituents feel that they should be saying. So even the virus is something that should be uniting us, is dividing us. So the challenges are immense, but they can be met, not in the near term, but it's going to require leadership. It's going to require leadership that has the ability to get us once again to see beyond the color of our skin, see beyond where we're from, to effectively see the person 
that's behind the facade and going to take time. There's no denying right now we're not doing that. If anything, we're, we're in two camps, actually in many camps at the moment. To take your medical metaphor one step forward, we need, I think, a policing czar for this country. <laughs> we need a Dr. Fauci of the police you know, it's, it's system. Dr. Dr. Know, even Dr. So, Fauci is now under strong criticism. I, I, I know. <laughs> I, I, all I'm saying, the position. So the, why why appoint you? Why not you, Commissioner I was actually offered during by the, the Clinton administration the position of prime czar mm. uh, by the Clinton administration. They were going to create it. They're going to announce it at the uh, State of the Union address in 1997 or 1998, I think it was. And I turned it down. Why? Because like the drugs are, you don't have operational control. You only have influence. And so I was offered the position of drugs are, uh, by Joe Biden and turned that down a number of years mm-hmm. later. Because the same thing that it's just you, you try to have influence, but in the federal government, those czars really have great difficulty. And trying to be a crime czar or a drugs czar now would be a nightmare. Thank you for the compliment, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll take a side. It's going to take more people than that. Before we close, we have to gush about your wife a little because we're huge fans of your wife. Oh, well, actually, you're going to have to get in line for that one. That uh, <laughs> Everybody loves Ricky. That, uh, Ricky oh, that, my goodness. Soulmate, I, it's that, amazing. Uh, I best. just, what I met you. But that, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm running out the door on, it, on you because if I don't pick her up to get her over to a doctor's appointment, that they'll be on her bed. So. <laughs> Well, I you, won't you, make you, you better you, go. You only see the good side. There's another okay, side. Yeah, okay, okay we, you we, better go. We won't make you wait for Ricky because I adore her. I, I, and when I met her, I was like beside myself. Well, in so terms excited. of what, what you see is what you get. You get oh, the person. Been, it's, it is uh, turn around 360 degrees. It's the same all 360 degrees. And as you know, our fans too, will, will, and our listeners, because okay. any big court person. I mean, I followed full yeah. trials with Ricky. You should get you her know? on the show someday. Yeah, I would. I we would try. Love. Yeah, we tried. We tried once. Okay, let's <laughs> but we, let's let him go yeah. so he can get his yeah, wife to the doctor. Ricky, you have two huge fans. Go, yes, <laughs> oh, but yes. it was such a pleasure. Thank you thank so thank much. Thank you so much. Really, very grateful. Thank, thank, thank you so you. much. Bye bye. Bye. Murder. Murder. Murder.